Begin in verse 16. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. That I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes to the peoples, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields will yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. Now, this book, besides being even difficult to find in the Old Testament, is often very misunderstood. The words of Habakkuk in these few verses. It's sort of a startling passage. The fact is the contrast between the circumstances and the experience. When you look at his circumstances and then you look at what he says, you think that he's kind of crazy. And many people have misunderstood this book of Habakkuk and misunderstood where he's coming from and why he says what he says after he says what's going on. Here's the picture of the circumstances. Verse 17. Though the fig tree is not blossoming, no fruit on the vines, the labor of the olive is failing, the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls. Now that's a pretty dreary picture. No provision. And really it's a picture of desolation as God said that He would come in and destroy the land of Israel using the enemies of Israel. That's a pretty bleak, dreary picture. Invasion. No provision. No food. And now that's the circumstances. Pretty bleak. Pretty black. But then his experience is this. In verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Was it that Habakkuk just underwent so much stress that he just sort of snapped? He saw the invading armies coming in. He was angry with God, angry with Israel, angry with the enemies of God as he saw his land wiped out in desolation by the Babylonians. He says, rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to joy. Now, is it that he was crazy or is it that we don't understand why he was so excited? Have you ever been misunderstood or said something or done something and been misunderstood by people? You know, they don't know where you're coming from or why you said something and so they take you wrong. I remember one time a brother was speaking to another group of Christians and they were just standing around talking. And a few weeks before, one of the people that we knew who was a Christian went home. He died and he was with the Lord. Now, for a Christian, that can be wonderful. It can be glorious. But when an unbeliever hears something like that, he's taken back. And I remember him saying, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? He's with the Lord. Isn't that neat? He died a couple of weeks ago and he's with Jesus. Isn't that great? And I remember the unbeliever's faces. How cruel. How can you say such a ghastly, ungodly thing as that? 
completely misunderstood. They didn't know why they said that. Someone gave me an illustration a couple weeks ago of being completely misunderstood. Saying one thing and meaning something, but being misinterpreted by someone else. And there was a lady who was from Switzerland. Now picture this. Or she was from England and she goes to Switzerland. And she wants to go to school in Switzerland, so she goes to the schoolmaster of this uh, school and he shows her different rooms where she can board. So she sees one room after another. She's quite pleased. Well, she goes back to England and she realizes that she never saw a WC. Now, how many of you know what a WC is? Okay, it's, it means water closet, which means restroom. And if you're ever in England, it'll say WC. This means that that's the place. But she was there in Switzerland and she saw no WC, so she wrote to the schoolmaster. And she said, you know, I was puzzled. I didn't see a WC all the time that I was there. And the guy, his English wasn't very well. He goes, what's a WC? Couldn't figure it out. And he labored over it and he finally asked the parish priest, hey, what's a WC? We've got to respond to this girl. She's looking for a WC. So they thought and they thought and they finally, the parish priest said, I think what she means is the wayside chapel. Now, she's thinking one thing, and they're thinking a totally different thing, and their wires got crossed. So then he wrote her a letter back, saying, oh, yes, we have a WC, and this is the letter. My dear madam, I take pleasure in informing you that the WC is situated nine miles from the house. <laughs> now, she's thinking of what we know it is, and he's thinking of a church, the Wayside Chapel. Communication got crossed. It's located in the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees surrounded by lovely grounds. It is capable of holding 229 people. It is open on Sundays and Thursdays only. Now, from her point of view, she's going, oh my goodness. Now, from the head of the school and the parish priest, they're saying, well, it's church and it's open on Thursdays and Sundays. As there are a great number of people expected during the summer months, I suggest that you come early. <laughs> Although usually there's plenty of standing room. <laughs> Should I go on? I um, He goes... This is an unfortunate fortunate situation, especially if you are in the habit of attending regularly. It may be of some interest to know that my daughter was married in the WC and that it was there that she met her husband. Perfectly innocent and legitimate, but not understood by the other lady. It goes on and I won't read the rest. Habakkuk is full of joy, rejoicing. If anybody else looked at his situation that didn't know what he knew, they would think, I don't understand. The country is in desolation. The buildings are broken down. The walls are destroyed. The people are in sin. There's no justice. There's no food provision for the people. And he says, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. What kind of an attitude is that? He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Either he was a little crazy or 
he grasped something that most people do not grasp. And he knew God in a way that many people do not know God, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. Now, what's interesting to note is he didn't start this way. He didn't begin on this level of rejoicing. In fact, look back to chapter 1. And verse 2, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me and there is strife and contention. Therefore the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Now this is where he started on the level of being doubtful and very pessimistic. And you know it's very hard to be around pessimistic people. Pessimism and doubt is just as contagious as faith is. You know, you come up with a new plan or a new vision, or you get excited and there's the pessimistic person. Oh, it won't work. Always ready to just blow it out of the water. I think of Thomas. Jesus says, we're going to Judea. Thomas goes, go ahead, you're never going to get out of there alive. Any of us. Thomas, Jesus is risen from the dead. Yeah, right. Always pessimistic. Always shooting things down just when you're getting excited. At this point in his life, Habakkuk was a pessimistic, doubtful person and he tells the Lord so. He says, how long am I going to cry to you and you're not going to do anything about it? I'm praying and you won't answer me. The law is powerless, he says. But then he ends in saying, but I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now that's quite a gap, isn't it? From being doubtful and pessimistic to jumping for joy and believing God and trusting. What fills that gap? That's what we want to see this morning. How did he get there? First of all, we want to draw your attention to three things. First, the conversation that he had with God. And that's what we'll look at first. Second of all, let's examine his joy. What kind of joy was it? And the third of all, how did he get to that high level? That's the lesson for us today. First of all is the conversation with God. Now, begin back in chapter 3. And he says in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionot. Nobody really knows what that is, but most people believe that the Shigionot was a song, a fast kind of a song with a fast pace to be sung with strong emotion. And it was a psalm or a song, a hymn, that was composed to be sung with uh, strong, strong emotion. Sung with strong emotion. Sung with strong emotion. That's it. No, it's not. And he says in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard your speech and I was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Verse 2 is his prayer. Verses 3 through 15 is God's answer to his prayer. And then 16 on is the response of praise to what God had told him. Now he says in verse 2, he says, revive your work, or literally, keep working, keep alive your work. What work is he talking about? What does he mean, keep alive your work? Okay, now let's follow this conversation with God. All the way back in chapter 1 again, Look at chapter 1. We get a little bit of insight into Habakkuk. Very honest, very sensitive kind of a person. 
very tender-hearted. Now Habakkuk looked at the people of Israel and saw that there was no justice, that God's people were sinning, were not living righteous. And he couldn't understand why God wasn't doing a thing about it. God, look what's happening to Israel. Why don't you do something? Why are you so quiet? What's going on? I've cried, you haven't answered. That's what he says in verses 1 through 4. Then God comes to him in this conversation and says, I am doing something about it, Habakkuk. And if I told you what it was, you wouldn't believe me anyway. He says in verse 5, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as an eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings. And princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up mounds of earth and seize it. God says, I am doing something, Habakkuk. Your prayer is answered. But if I told you what it was, you still wouldn't believe it. He says, I am going to raise up your enemies, the Chaldeans, heathens, much more wicked than you are, and I'm raising them up to come against you to judge the people of Israel, to correct my people who are living in sin. Now, at this point, Habakkuk is more angry with God. He starts being argumentative with God. He says in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, the Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. That is the Chaldeans, the heathen. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours one more righteous than he? See, what he's saying is this, God, first I was angry and I was pessimistic. Now I'm really angry. Okay, you said you're working. But is it right, oh God, for you to bring a nation more wicked than we are to judge us? They're the ones that you've appointed for judgment. And he starts arguing with that. Can you imagine arguing with God? Sure you can, because you do it. And so do I. Be real honest. There's times when you argue with God. Wait a minute, God, that's not right. We begin to argue and counsel God. Can you imagine? Who has known the mind of the Lord, Paul said? Who has been his counselor? Me. You. We begin saying, now God, this is the way I do it. Counseling and arguing with God. I remember Peter. Great sheep was let down from heaven. Peter was on the rooftop praying to God. All of these unkosher things to eat. And the Lord says, Peter, rise up, slay, and eat them. And Peter, in his beautiful, submissive spirit, says, No way, God. Not so, Lord. Can you imagine saying, Not so, to the Lord? Actually, you can't say, Not so, Lord. Because if you say, Not so, He's not your Lord. You can say, Not so, 
friend. Not so. But you can't say not so, Lord. Lord means you are absolute ruler, dictator. What you say goes, I will bow and acquiesce to your command. But Peter was arguing. And we've argued, haven't we? We've counseled God, haven't we? Let's be real honest. Habakkuk is angry at this point. Now there's a change. From this point, there's a change. After he gets it all out, argues with God. In chapter 2, there's a change in his mood. He says in verse 1, I will stand my watch and I will set myself on the rampart to watch and to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. He's waiting now on God. He was bitter and pessimistic. God spoke to him. Then he starts arguing with God. Now there's a change and he's waiting on the Lord. He goes, okay, I'm going to kick back. I'll sit in my watchtower. I will wait and see what the Lord will say to me. And during this time of waiting, God reveals to him something very precious. In verse 4 of chapter 2, God says this, Behold the proud. Speaking of the Chaldean army, were known for their pride in destroying nations. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. This was a principle that now turns the tide of his thinking. Let me take care of the Chaldeans, okay, Habakkuk? They're wicked, they're prideful, but the just shall live by faith. You apply this principle to your life. You just trust me, believe me, trust in me. Trust that I know a little bit better than you do. The just shall live by faith. And then the Lord speaks all the way through this chapter till we get to chapter 3. And he prays to God and he says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and I was afraid. O Lord, revive your work or keep your work alive. In other words, through this conversation, he's finally come and he said this, God, I don't understand your methods. I thought that you had forsaken us as a people. Now you said that you were working, God. I buy that. But I can't understand your method in working. But even though I can't understand your method in working, I pray, keep working. Keep your work alive. Revive your work. See what a beautiful change in his heart from being argumentative till finally he doesn't understand God's method. But he says, look, I'll submit to you anyway, even though I don't understand what you're doing or why you're doing it. Keep Alive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. But then he says this, in wrath, remember mercy. A man who is pessimistic and doubtful. What happened to him? He was brought face to face with God. He had fellowship with God and communion with God. And while he was in fellowship with God and waiting upon God, God spoke to him. He says, the just shall live by faith. And so he looks back and he sees his people running around in sin. He sees that there's no justice in the land. More than that, he sees the armies coming over to destroy the land. To wipe out God's people. The heathen proud people coming in to wipe out God's people. And he says, God, in spite of this all, in spite of the fact that I don't understand what you're doing or why, I will rejoice in the Lord. And he says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 19, the Lord is my strength. 
He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk upon the high hills. How dare he rejoice when his people are about to be wiped out? Was he crazy? No. He'd been in fellowship with God. God revealed special things to him. And then he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. That is true faith. You know, I've heard many definitions of faith in the years that I've been a Christian. Many people speak about faith. But the true faith is not just believing and praising God when there's prosperity. Believing and trusting God when the road is smooth. True faith will stand in the day when there's desolation and oppression and no provision and look it right in the face and says, I still know that God is good and just. And God will provide. Even though I can't see it, even though all of the provision is stripped away from me, I will say, rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You know, it's very easy to rejoice and say, God, I trust you, I believe you, when the cupboards are full. Oh God, you're so good, you provided. But when the cupboards are bare, to look at the bare cupboard and to see your children who need a meal and to say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation is an experience of true faith and true joy that overcomes circumstances. Okay, that's his conversation with God. Now let's look at the kind of joy that he was speaking about. He says in verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. Let me give you a literal Hebrew translation. It's probably not written in your Bibles. It's literally, I will jump for joy in the Lord. And then he says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. That is literally, I will spin around in God. Now imagine that. There's no provision. The olive tree is failing. There's no herd in the stalls. The enemy is going to come and make the land completely desolate. That's like saying, I'm bankrupt. My cupboards are bare. And I will rejoice and spin around in God. Jump for joy. Now, come on. That sounds a little too idealistic, doesn't it? Let's be real. Does that ever happen to real people? Can people like you and I ever experience that kind of a joy? Jumping for joy, spinning around in God when there's lack of these things that Habakkuk saw? He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk upon the high hills. One of the most aggravating things, and I'll be very honest with you because I think you've experienced it, is that when you yourself are going through a pressuring time, when you yourself feel the pressure of no provision or the pressure of desolation, when you're going through the worst trial or fire that you've ever gone through and someone comes up and slaps you on the back and goes, Praise the Lord, brother! Isn't that great? You go, oh, get out of here. Now that's how you feel inside. There's nothing more aggravating when you're going through it for someone to say, hey, don't worry about it, man. But it's another thing when you're going through it and God reveals His presence and His provision to you and then you're lifted out of it. And that's what happened exactly to Habakkuk here. Now it's important to realize why he was saying this. 
Look a little closer at verse 18. I will rejoice in the Lord. Where was his joy? Was it in the fact that there was no provision? No. Was it in the fact that the Chaldeans were going to come and wipe out Israel? No. His joy was in the Lord in spite of those things. He's not saying, I'm rejoicing that we're going to be wiped out. Oh, isn't it great that there's no provision? Oh, bless God. No. In spite of that, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will spin around in God, not in those things. I have heard this funny doctrine for a few years about praising the Lord for everything. I don't buy it. And there's been books written, praise the Lord for this, praise the Lord. No, you can praise the Lord in everything. I don't necessarily praise the Lord for everything that happens, but I praise God in everything. I can rejoice in the Lord. When I had a family tragedy, when my brother was killed, I didn't say, oh God, I praise you for that. I said, God, I praise you in this. I can still rejoice in you. My joy is in you. You know, the true man of faith, under pressuring times like Habakkuk, will take his focus off of the powerful circumstances and put his focus on a God who is more powerful than the circumstances. That's where his joy was, not in those things. After this conversation with God, after waiting upon God, fellowshipping with God, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will spin around in God. That's the kind of joy that he had, but it was based completely upon the Lord. Now, if he were to look only at his circumstances, he would be very defeated and depressed. If Habakkuk was... And put yourself in his place. You see your people in sin, straying away from God. You see your family not caring about God. Everyone's turned against you. Everyone's turned against God. And then God says, Hey, Habakkuk, I'm going to bring in an enemy that's more wicked than you and he's going to wipe out all these people that you love. You know, just looking at that, that can bum out your whole day. Cause you to be very defeated and distressed. But again, his focus was shifted to God, you're mighty. God, you're powerful. Wasn't this the experience of Paul the Apostle as he was writing from a Roman prison and he was chained between two posts in the Mamertine prison in Rome, the worst prison a person could ever go to. And in Philippians he says, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. And then later on he says, finally my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Once more time. How can a man rejoice under those circumstances? By not focusing completely on the circumstances. Easier said than done. Okay, we've seen his conversation with God. We've seen the joy that he exhibited. How did he get there? How did he get to this place? How do you get from a level of doubt and pessimism to a level of saying, I will rejoice in the Lord, though I don't see any provision? Now that's what we need to learn. We can't just examine his conversation and examine his joy without knowing how to get there. That would be unfair. First of all, and mark this, his first step in this rejoicing was that he doubted. You go, oh, oh, wait a minute. How can doubt lead you to faith? Well, exactly that. It was honest doubt. Turn with me to chapter 1 again. Verse 
And look at verse 2, what he says. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, the Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You're of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours. Now, that is honest doubt. Don't blame Habakkuk for honest doubt. Because you doubt and I doubt sometimes. Even though you may never admit that you ever doubt God in those quiet, silent times when you're before the Lord, or when something drastic happens, you and I are prone to honestly question certain things. And let me say that that's okay to have honest doubt. Now, it becomes sin when it leads to complete unbelief. Doubt can lead to unbelief and it can become sin. But honest doubt is the first step to that joy that overcomes, to true faith. Abraham had some honest doubts. It's the kind of questions that say, God, I don't understand. God, why? God, why are you so silent? God, I've been waiting. I've been praying. How long? Lord, I haven't had a job for a long time. How long will it be that I will see no provision? Those are honest doubts. I remember a time in my ministry where I questioned God. I said, God, I don't understand. Have you really called me? Is this just something I made up? God, I, you haven't spoken to me for such a long time. I don't understand. I'm doubting. That is better than a false faith. I think God is insulted by fake, false Faith, faith that is pretended, faith that's pumped up when it's not really in the heart. I think God's insulted by that, unless it's real. But the quickest way to get to that place of rejoicing and faith is to first come and be honest with God. There's nothing wrong with being honest with God. It's good to come honestly and pour out your heart honestly before the Lord. Say, God, this is exactly how I feel. Like the man who came to Jesus and Jesus said, do you believe? The man said, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, that's honest. He could have said, yes, I believe completely. Now, he said, no, I believe this much, but this much I don't believe. I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a part of me that believes. There's a part of me that doubts. I'm honest. Help my unbelief. That is honesty. And when a man confesses that, he's on his road to victory and to faith. When he comes and he honestly pours his heart out before God. Think of Peter who honestly cried out before the Lord. Peter, you want to come and walk on the water? Yeah, Lord, it'd be great. Well, come on. And he's out there and goes, wait a minute. I can't do this. This is impossible. And he starts going like this, sinking. At that point, there's no time to be anything but honest with God. When you're sinking and you're in desolation. Now, Peter could have pretended, but he would have sunk. Hey, why be anything else? but honest before God. God already knows your true heart and if you're not honest with Him, why be anything else but just pour out your heart before God? Be honest with Him. And that's the first step is that honesty before the Lord. Now don't forget that He came before the Lord with His doubt. He didn't go around and necessarily discuss it with everybody else or just keep it to Himself and admit that He was doubting. He brought it before the Lord. And there are many people, you and I, who have questions and doubts. God doesn't want you just to discuss your doubts among each other 
or to admit that you have them? Have you ever thought about coming directly to God and say, God, I don't understand this. I don't want to just waste my time telling everybody else I don't understand. I'm telling you. So you reveal it to me and I'll be open and I'll learn from it. Honesty before the Lord. That's the first step. The second step is a little more difficult. Because we all can admit that there's things that we don't understand about God's methods. But the second thing is a little more difficult. In chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch or I will wait. I will set myself on the watchtower, the rampart. I will wait to see what he will say unto me. Do you realize how difficult that is? To sit still and just to wait on God? That is, you know, when we pray, don't you wish that God would always just say yes or no? But it's those silent times, isn't it? Or the times when he says, wait a while. That can just be really hard to endure. Now imagine seeing the armies approaching to wipe out Israel and all of the desolations and no provision and he says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to see what God's going to do. <laughs> Try that. It sounds, you know, some of the smallest, easiest sounding commandments in the scripture, the hardest to follow. Be still and know that I am God. Oh, that's so beautiful. It sounds so easy. Yeah, try it. Try to be still and wait upon God. What is our human instinct in times of trouble? We've got to figure out how to do it. How, how are we going to deal with it? We've got to figure out. We've got to make phone calls. We've got to get things together. This is a crisis. Now, that's the human instinct. And our figuring is this. I'll try plan A, plan B, plan C. I'll figure it all out. If it doesn't work, then I'll just pray. I guess that's all there's left. <laughs> Last resort. But wait upon God? We don't think about that. He says, I'm going to wait upon the Lord. I'm going to set myself on the washer. I'm going to kick back. I'm going to see what God's going to do. Can you imagine personally doing that? No money. Look in the cupboards. It's bare. Your own stomach begins to growl. You look at your wife and children. And you go, honey, I'm going to go away for a couple of days and pray and wait on God. Oh, no, you're not, buddy. <laughs> it's not that easy. It's difficult to wait upon God. And yet it's so necessary. David said in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the miry clay, set me upon a rock, established my goings, and I will sing a new song unto the Lord, even praise unto our God. The same experience that Habakkuk had. When I was in India, and I relayed this story to you, I met a man named M. Paulos, who knew the art of waiting upon God. Little short guy. When you look at him, you wouldn't think much but a man who walked with God and had faith. And he said when he trusted the Lord and he moved to some of the islands to preach the gospel, nobody knew where he was. He went out on his own by faith, took his family with him. His wife was eight and a half months pregnant. Had no money, had no home. He says there were times when no food came in. No one knew where we were. We didn't say, here's our address, please send money. He says God knew our needs. God knew where we were. He says as we were out there, on the beach areas preaching the gospel. We ran out of food. He said there were days went by that we didn't have any food. He said finally my son came up to me. He said, Daddy, we, we need food. And they began to cry. And he said my son would throw up a fluid um, in his stomach designating that he was starving to death and he, and he fainted on the ground. Can you imagine being a father, having your wife and children look at you and go, Daddy, we're starving to death. And his wife 
And he knelt on the floor, began to pray, Oh God, you know our needs. Oh God, as the children cry, I pray that the neighbors won't hear them, they would pray. Lord, you know our needs. I don't understand why it's taken you so long, but you know that we're starving. Please provide. He said in that very same day, as they waited upon God, checks and money came in from people who didn't even know him. He never told anyone his address where he was. But he said this with all boldness at that conference. He goes, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If no one on earth knows your need, that's okay because God knows your need. And God knows your address and He's capable to fulfill if you wait upon the Lord. Wow, what a lesson. Waiting upon God. He says, I'm going to sit on my watchtower. I'm going to wait upon the Lord. Now this is beautiful. Because while he was waiting, while he honestly came before the Lord, honestly poured out his heart, spent some time in waiting, spent some time in listening to God, God spoke to him. And he shared with him verse 4 of chapter 2. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. What is the message to this waiting prophet? It's this. Habakkuk, soon the Chaldeans will be coming over these hills to wipe out the land I've raised them up. Soon the people that you love will be scattered. There is no food, no animals in the stalls, no fruit on the trees. But Habakkuk, apply this principle to your life. The just shall live by faith. Apply this principle to all that puzzles you. Apply this principle to all that is going on in your mind that you're doubting. The just shall live by faith. And then believe me. Trust me. Because the just shall live by faith, then you have faith. You know me. You've waited upon me. You've heard from me. Now believe me. Just trust me. And then he shares the song with us in chapter 3 and he ends with saying, though the fig tree may not blossom, though the fruit is not on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields have no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. This is the results of a man who is one honest with God took time to listen to God and waited upon God. God spoke to him. And he came from this place of doubt and pessimism saying, hey, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. This is the result of someone who will take the time to be honest and then listen and wait upon God in the midst of those circumstances. When I was a young Christian, brought up in a religious home, my parents didn't accept my Christianity, thought I was a weird fanatic, they were correct. My friends thought I was the same. They rejected me. There was pressures all around me. And I went in my room one night and I just started crying. God, why did I become a Christian? And I poured out my heart to the Lord. And you know what? In those alone times, God spoke to me. And I remember having a little good news for modern man, a little living Bible. As a baby Christian, I opened it up to the Beatitudes. And one of the way the living Bible translated the Beatitudes was this. Blessed is the man whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. And I meditated on that. I was two weeks old in the Lord. I thought, is that my desire to live by faith and just to do what God requires? And I was honest. I said, nope. A lot of me is following the Lord, but a lot of me is holding on. It's hard for me just to live completely for God's desires. 
That's not my chief goal. So I just said, Lord, I wanted to be my chief goal. But it was during those times of being pressed and pressure as I poured out my heart to the Lord and waited on God that God spoke to me and gave me that strength. And I came out of my room rejoicing. Think, oh man, though my parents kick me out, though my friends do the same, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Spin around in the God of my salvation. This, this morning is not a message necessarily for the, those of us who are having the smooth road. Maybe lately things have been going well and good and you've been prospering. Let me say that I rejoice with you. And if you're in a prospering situation where the road is smooth, hey, praise the Lord and thank God for those times. Really. But there are some of us who are in desolation. No provision being pressed and pressured. It's to those that this message is speaking to. How can I rise to this place of rejoicing in the Lord? First, by coming to the Lord honestly and realizing that no matter what crummy circumstance I'm in, God is still at work. Jesus Christ is still working on my behalf. And then you can say the same thing. But you say, but skip. It's so hard to live by faith. I agree. But let me share that it's harder not to live by faith. It's devastating not to live by faith. The just shall live by trusting and believing in God. And it's this pressure time and say, God, although I don't understand the circumstance nor the method, I realize that you're still at work and pray like he prayed. Keep working. Go for it, God. Keep your work alive. I don't understand your method. I'm puzzled, but keep going. Work your perfect work in me. Go ahead and keep the pressure on. You know what's best. I'll but trust in you and believe in you. The just shall live by faith. One of the favorite things that I've always loved to hear and I've shared with you before was a man who was a goldsmith. He was working hard on a vessel of gold. Pot. Expensive. Costly. Thousands of dollars worth. And he was turning it over the fire in his shop. And a man was walking by the shop, stopped, looked inside, was fascinated by this goldsmith. Saw with what care and precision the man would turn it over the kiln. And he finally stepped inside the shop and sat down for half an hour, then an hour, then an hour and a half passed. And he was amazed. This guy won't let up. What's he doing? And he said, excuse me, sir. I know you're busy, but... And that man wouldn't turn away, just kept turning. He said, you've been at this for an hour and a half, turning it over and over in this fire in the kiln. It looks perfect to me. How do you know when it's done? He says, look closer. And he pointed out tiny little flaws in the gold. He says, I can detect these tiny flaws and I know this, that I will keep it over the fire, burning, being pressured, until I can look at it and perfectly see my image without those little specks and flaws. Then it's done. Until then, I'll keep my work up. I'll keep turning it over the fire. We say, God, why? How long will it be? Why have you been so silent lately? Well, God will keep you over that fire until He can see His image perfectly in you. When you have the image of Jesus Christ, at that point you're finished. Until then, Habakkuk said, keep working, Lord. And even though I don't understand the circumstances, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. No provision. I will rejoice. I'll spin around in God. No, he wasn't crazy. 
Just misunderstood. He knew God better by being honest and waiting and listening to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Your joy is directly proportional to your trust in God. How much joy do you have as a Christian this morning? Depends on how much you trust God. To know God is to trust God. To trust God is to have joy in the Lord. It's directly proportional. The fullness of joy depends on the fullness that you trust in the Lord. The just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we look at an example of a man who was pessimistic and doubtful. And we take courage, Lord, because this is often right where we're sitting. And we'll be honest with you this morning and realize that we have some doubts. That we cry and that we argue. We don't excuse it, but you know it's the truth. Lord, help us to wait upon you and understand that although we don't understand your methods, that we would ask you to keep working, keep turning that vessel, keep the pressure on until need be. And until then, we can just trust you and believe you. And because we can look at you and not the fact that there is no provision, we can say, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in you. Oh God, it's you that we take joy and pleasure in this morning.